Hello and welcome to our podcast, Pretty for an Aboriginal. I'm Nikki Louie. And I'm Miranda Tapsell. And we're here to talk about all the things this country has trouble talking about. Like sex, relationships, dating, weight, race and politics. And we did you all a solid and we broke all of those taboos with Roxanne Gay. People oftentimes think fat people don't have sex and can't be desired and can't have desires. And I'm very interested in, in challenging that. You know what, Nakia? Roxanne Gay is the woman who made me feel things for other women. Okay, Tapsel. No, she writes very sensual <laughs> stories about women for women. Uh, she's also an amazing essayist who writes about the stuff that rarely gets airtime, the lives of women, sex, desire, and things that happen in relationships that few want to acknowledge. I am a fan. I totally fangirl. You did, but you were really good and you were super cute fangirling. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's get to the interview. Roxanne Gay. Here's one of my favourite tweets from the past few months. Men exhaust me. I don't miss dating guys one iota, but I do miss the D. Roxanne Gay, welcome to our podcast. Glad to be here. Um, I loved Difficult Women. I thought that was really awesome. Thank you. I really loved that it explored in depth the mul- like how multifaceted a woman's experience is mm-hmm. particularly when it comes to sexuality i i am a um heterosexual woman but i found myself like that's okay you'll come to the light soon <laughs> well reading your book i don't know there was this there was this one i think i can't i can't remember which story it was but it was it was definitely um a- about a relationship between two women and I was getting all hot and flustered. I was, I was going, oh my goodness! <laughs> I need to, I need to put this book down for a minute and have a glass of water. <laughs> I believe you're talking about baby arm. <laughs> yes, baby arm is awesome. Like, because my interpretation was about that, even though she felt this, um, this connection with this woman, she still wanted to have a like. She still liked the idea of being with a man. Is that? Um, I don't know that it's that it's just like, she's a straight woman, but she also has this really intense connection with her best friend. Yeah. And it, I think that sometimes friendships with women, uh, platonic friendships with women can be erotic. And there was a lot of erotic charge to this this friendship (sighs) that she had. And um, they were just the kind of friends that had like no boundaries. Like one day she's fucking her boyfriend and talking to her best friend on the phone at the same time. And like her best friend is telling the boyfriend to do like these terrible things. Well, terrible, sexy things Yeah, yeah. Uh, to her. And so it's just. like She this, was on the phone while. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I remember and that. So bit. it's just this idea of like the erotics between friends. Um, yeah. It just normalized relationships. That I, and it for me, I went, well, I could be attracted to anyone. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that sexuality is fluid for many people. And um, I'm bisexual myself. And so it's always fun to normalize what is normal, that you can be attracted to all kinds of people. Uh, and that, you know, heterosexuality is as normal as bisexuality is as normal as hom- homosexuality. And and so I try to write sexuality f- without judgment, regardless of the sexual identity of my characters. Why write that style of fiction in terms of erotica? Sex is fun. <laughs> sex is interesting. I think mm-hmm. it offers a lot of narrative potential to write about sex. You have joy and pain and sorrow and 
and humor and anger, like everything about life and relationships can can be translated narratively through sex. And a lot of my early writing was actually erotica. And uh, I, I published under two or three different names and I have a whole career with a different name. So I've been writing about sex for a very long time. And was that pseudonym like gendered at all or? Yeah, one was not gendered, but I was always writing as a woman. It wasn't to ever obfuscate my gender. It was to keep my parents out of my Google search. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, fair enough. (laughs) I had a bit of a career writing some um, ice skating erotic fan fiction back in. How does does that work? That's the new one. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. It was the uh, Russian ice skater Yevgeny Plushenko. Right, yeah, and really? I had a whole series, yeah. <laughs> that I, little fella. Yeah, that guy. Do you yeah. know who he is? Of course I do. Oh, so you're an ice skating. I enjoy ice skating. I'm obsessed you with You found ice him skating. interesting sexually? I found him so appealing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've uh, met some kinky people in my day. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that awesome. <laughs> he had like a, a, a bull head haircut with lengths. I still, like, talking about it now, I'm getting steamy. Mm-hmm. Yem-hmm. Yeah, that fine. Well, he did have a fine skater thighs. Yeah, he had that nice butt and he could, mm-hmm. like, stretch his leg up really high. Yes, in the he skin. could. He's the only male and he could just... did that. Yeah. <laughs> create <laughs> access. Lumberness <laughs> um, yeah. goes a long way. Well, I knew nothing about sex. I was just kind of, you know, relaying on stuff I It was your, it was your awakening. Yeah. 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 Just being like, if you go right. down on a woman, do the alphabet. I was like, I have no idea what the... I'm glad that he was like your your entry he was my, Yeah, my my my, my, my starter my pack. My starter pack. <laughs> good, not, good work. And then my taste of yeah, slightly. I I would like to think matured, like a like a fine wine. Excellent. Okay, great. Um, and so you talk about this idea of you know that that the the politics of sex and that it can, I suppose, with your erotica be then take take away boundaries, so mm-hmm. to speak. Um, do you find that? You know, with your your latest work, you are talking so much about the body. Is that a political unpacking that you do within your erotic work and your sexual work, given that we so often physicalise sex in these ideas that it's a natural, innate thing to desire somebody a certain way? Hmm. I don't know. I think it's connected, for sure. It's it's connected um, because, you know, sex is a part of life, but people oftentimes think fat people don't have sex and can't be desired and can't have desires. And I'm very interested in in challenging that and say, you know, Mm -hmm. we are sexual beings, we have sexual lives and, uh, you know, our partners uh, have a range of bodies from other fat people to people who are thin to people who are in between. Um, And our our sexualities uh, are not defined by fatness per se. And it's important to, to remind people of that because the fat sexual woman is oftentimes very demonized and mocked in popular culture. And um, if she's not made a buffoon of mm. a la, like Melissa McCarthy, who's never really allowed to be sexual. And when she is sexual, it's always yearning or desperate or hypersexualized. Mm. And it's disgraceful. That's, that's the only option that we have in popular culture. 
Yeah, well, yeah, fetish, fetish, that can't, can't Fet- say fetishization. Fetishized. I'm sorry. I'm just a little Aboriginal girl. I don't speak good English, but. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. 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 You got two degrees, baby. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> I know that. Look, you couldn't even carry that off. What's your heart for trying? <laughs> oh, thanks, thanks. Um, I do a, it's really funny. I do, you, how you speak of that, and this is where, like, for myself, your work is so incredibly uh, create so much space. So I guess before going into that, I just, this is a really, just this is a big, open, general question. Yeah. So writing about relationships and sex is, is that a political that- act for you? No. I mean, everything I write is a political act. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So I guess it's part, because my writing is inherently political, um, but not in the negative way that that is oftentimes construed. Um, but yeah, it's political. And... Um, I, I don't write about my relationship personally because I have to have some boundaries. I, I, I allude to it. It's not a secret, but it's also not public because I choose to write about myself, but I'm not going to put the spotlight on someone who never asked for any of that. Um, but I do write about relationships, broadly speaking. And of course, if you uh, if you wronged me as an ex then I will <laughs> certainly put your shit on Front Street. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's yeah. definitely political. And what would you say, like, what would your definition be political in the good way? Well, what I mean by political is yeah. that, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested in the lives of others and in the social condition and uh, giving voice to the voiceless and uh, making sure that oppression is is seen and known even if writing about it doesn't solve anything i think that discussing oppression and uh, bringing it to the light um really helps and goes a long way and you know i think living life is a political act oftentimes especially as a a woman of color and so uh, i embrace it and i embrace this idea of taking a stand and letting my viewpoints be clear um, like an ex said to me, because I um I spoke about my experience as an Aboriginal woman in the media, and he rang up to check on me, and then he said, "You need to decide whether you want to be an activist or whether you want to be an artist." Um, which... uh, so he's your ex, yes? Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Because I was going to say item one after you leave this interview is to fucking break up with him. <laughs> Just mics off. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, people yeah. like to separate art and activism as if the two can't coexist. But I actually just finished teaching a fiction workshop for my grad students about writing the political novel. Uh, because you can be artistic and you can be write beautiful prose and still make a statement. You can, can still be about something. Uh, people hear political and they think campaigning and they think politics in the most literal sense. But really it's polis of the people from Latin. Um, it's really just writing about people yeah, and taking a stand of some kind. But what I can't understand of like, is what is art if it's not holding the mirror up to society, like showing someone from the outside who they are? Well, I think because like art has like our culture is such such a monoculture where this standard, like this objective is always about being like a, a white cis hetero man who's like rich and like holds those values and Mm -hmm. so the values of society of of what the status quo is are actually rather small Mm. but we think that encompasses everyone 
Yeah. Yeah. People don't like to hold multiple ideas at once and they don't want to understand that different people of color have different realities. So for example, they, they think that all people of color are the same. And I actually often use the phrase people of color, but sometimes you have to get specific and say Aboriginal Mm. or Korean or Native American or Black or Haitian or whatever, because each group has specific concerns. Mm. And yet we also collectively have concerns like our our oppressions are generally similar. Mm. Um, But people do like to sort of understand us as a uniform thing, as if that would make it easier to 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 rationalize and to make to deal with. Um, And they get very angry when they realize that we contain multitudes. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like um, when it comes to being the other, there's not a gender to it. Like, for mm-hmm. instance, I was I was at a hen's night, right, like legit in, in fishnets and boots and, like, lipstick, and I was walking, I was walking with um, these women and someone called out because um, I was in a film, but the film that they referenced was, it, was played by an Aboriginal boy. So they're like, that's the boy from Baz Luhrmann's Australia. And I was thinking to myself, what? How could you confuse the How film I was into just because there was Aboriginal people in it? Oh, you're a little black boy. They thought I was yeah, a little black like, well, It's interesting. I've been called more sir more in the past two days than I have in the past five years. That is shocking. Yeah. Really? It's irritating as fuck. <laughs> it really is because my boobs are massive. Like, really? Really? (laughs) This fabulous rack and you're going to call me sir? How dare you? Yeah. How did you, how would you, down here, please. You know, uh, women of color in particular are oftentimes ungendered. We are not allowed to be women. We're not allowed femininity. That's something for white women. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, we're seen as workhorses. And oftentimes that's how we're treated because we do the domestic labor. We do farm labor. We do all kinds of labor. Um. And when we are given a gender, we're hypersexualized and we're simply there uh, as sexual objects to satisfy white men. And then um, we go back to being ungendered. Yeah. Well, within Australia, we also have, and I would say this is the States as well, potentially, but we also then have you're a, a victim of sex. Mm-hmm. So that if you're a black woman, that say that, yeah, you're hypersexual and that is your vice and you're this carnal animal mm-hmm. or you're an object of desire, usually unwillingly. Yes. And your sex is therefore then your curse, mm-hmm. even though that's not your fault. Yeah, it's a lie. Yeah. <sighs> white people. <laughs> but no, in Australia we have very, I find Australia more than anywhere else in the world has incredibly rigid uh, ideas about the, uh, like conventions mm. about what is male, what is female, and what is beautiful. It's interesting. I agree. I mm. agree. Um, and I've been to a few places in the world, and um, Australia is noticeable. And I said this last time I was here, too. The commercials, the morning news programs, like the women are expected to be feminine and deferent and almost dumb. Yeah. Mm. And you can you know these are intelligent women who are just playing the game. Yeah. But it's really noticeable in the commercials, the way they like talk about women in the commercials. I'm just like, things are bad in the United States with regards to gender, but like it's a paradise compared to like what I've seen here. It's and the men are so sexist. 
Yeah. It's like uh, everything, almost every driver I've had since I've gotten here has been like, all right, girls, to me and my publicist. And I'm like, girls, I'm 42. (laughs) What are you talking about? And it's it's in many ways benign sexism, but it's just, I really feel like I'm in 1954. Yeah, it's super cash. I have had the same experience in like Uber when um, uh, in the, like in the one journey, did this this Uber driver like pointed out this girl's short shorts and he's like, oh, you know, she's got things out, hasn't she? And then on top of that, I was helping him with directions. <laughs> like, Do your then, job, mate. I'm paying you for your yeah, racism exactly. and your lack of direction. And he right. and he didn't. So he didn't know where he was going. And then he said to me, "Would well, you want to get out and drive?" And I felt like being a smart. Wait, was he being serious? Saying, yeah, like he did not like me talking. He, he did not want me to, he was getting annoyed at the sound of my voice. And yeah. I said to him, and, and I felt, and I, like so much of my self-control had to be reined in because, you know, my, I've got foot in mouth and I had the thing of like, well, do you want my money? Because I'm happy to step out now, you know, because it's so, it was so rude of him. Did you report yeah. him to Uber? Um, yeah, yeah, okay, because good. I was just, zero stars. I gave him zero stars. Good, because you can't just let that go. <laughs> first of all, it's called Google Maps. <laughs> it's, I know. Jesus. The app is literally, the Uber app comes with the map. <laughs> like, you are profoundly bad at your job, sir. <laughs> but yeah, a lot of it, I've, I mean, I know that there's more profound forms of it, but a lot of it is just benign sort of stuff that the world has generally eradicated. Like, oh, hey, Cookie, and like workplace casual sexual harassment. Yeah. It's just like, oh, wow, Australian women, solidarity. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all yeah. are dealing with a lot. <laughs> I wonder if it goes back, this just maybe digging a bit too deep into it, but it's something I've thought about a lot, right? And I wonder if it goes back to this idea that Australia was a place where when, you know, when the English rocked up in what was it, like 1788, yeah. um, that they declared it empty, terra nullius, you know, basically tried to eradicate Aboriginal people through various, they were like very creative in our means yeah. of genocide. You know, Policies the one thing that really yeah. creative is, is, you know, killing our, our brown people. Um, but so I think with that, maybe there's this idea too, like we have, we have really mad tall poppy syndrome here. Like can never be too big for your boots. You yeah. always have to, you know, you can't ever be too smart. Mm-hmm. Um and then I wonder if it's this idea of like that, that sexism comes from a, of this idea of blokey blokes having to be the, the cool guy and always having to kind of be relaxed and prove that masculinity to actually assert themselves being here. Yeah. I, it, well, I think it's part of toxic masculinity and, um, you know, uh, I, I, this is why feminism benefits all of us because I think men suffer from rigid gender roles. Um, not as much, but... <sighs> they do face a lot of issues in trying to live up to what is expected of them. Masculinity is incredibly toxic. And um, I think that there are ways to talk about that and allow men more space to be human and still without, without emasculating them. It's not about emasculation. I I enjoy men for the fact that they're men, Um, but I don't want them to talk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just shh. Just like that dialect. We've heard enough from you. <laughs> like we've heard enough from you for centuries, and look what you've done to this world. It's it. Shh. I just made some like really weird analogy in my head that makes no sense. But I was like, it's like, you know, 
like wanting to be a vegan but really liking meat. I was like, would I have lab grown D? Like, can we yeah. like get rid of the men but grow the yeah. D? That's a that's exactly what it's like sometimes. It's like I really enjoy you guys, but I can't. <laughs> you frustrate me too much. It, it can be so frustrating. Like I'm in a relationship with a woman right now, and I don't miss dating men at all. Do you find though, Roxanne, that um, uh, that you have to be very careful about, like, because you're in a relationship, you have to be careful about talking about who you're attracted to and who? No, that's I don't. good. Yeah, I'm. That's no, awesome. I'm very lucky. I mean, we're not dead. <laughs> yeah. well, that's like, that's what that's eat, what. Yeah, yeah. We still live in the world. You eat with your eyes first. Yeah. No, that's what my partner said too. He's like, isn't it great that you can like perv on John Boyega, but I know that you're coming home to me. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think that any relationship where you can't be attracted to other people, um, and especially celebrities, like you're not, it's not ever going to happen. But like, you know, it's like walking down the street together and you see like an attractive person and like it's, if you can't express that yeah, and know that it's safe and if you can't be trusted and if you can't trust that nothing's going to happen, then something's wrong with the relationship. Mm. Something is really wrong. And I, I and I do get jealous, but not of stuff like that. That's not it. I never get jealous about like, oh, he's so fine. Mm. No, I get jealous over really like petty shit. Ooh, like <laughs> petty shit do you get jealous over? Like if someone else makes her laugh, then I get really jealous. I get jealous about that too. Like I'm very funny. Yeah. I'm like, you, only like you should only be funny. laughing at my jokes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> laughing at anyone else's and this is over. Okay, so it's it's funny when you're talking about like this idea of, of fat women and their sexuality mm-hmm. and then also that then and throwing race in the mix. I'm on a I d I'm on a comedy show here and um, in between the two seasons, I had weight loss surgery and also the gastric sleeve surgery you mentioned in your book. And I lost about, I think it was like close to about 70 kilos in between doing the two shows. And the first season we had two sex scenes um, and we got that out of a show that's all about race and there's like, there's a lot of like male homosexual scenes. It was the only sketches to get complaints, but I got all of these messages from guys that were really like, they'd all start off with, look, I'm not going to lie, I find you attractive, as if somehow there was this, the, the premise of the conversation was that I don't find you attractive. And they were hypersexual and, and incredibly um, inappropriate. Like one guy just sent me a list of all the foods he wanted to feed me. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think oftentimes men, when, they, when men do that, it's because they feel societally that they can't... Uh, confess attraction to fat women mm-hmm. uh, and so it becomes a sh- secret shame and it's all about them and so when they're telling you they're actually unburdening themselves and they're just saying i really am into you and i'm not allowed to be um and so i'm not at all surprised that you got that yeah but then going into the second season where i i had lost weight and i was kind of prepared for this onslaught right of messages and they never came you know, like they just never came. And then when I was bigger, everybody would always tell me I have a very pretty face mm-hmm. and now people have stopped saying that to me. And it's like now I have an autonomy over my body or a control over my body that I never was allowed mm-hmm. to have before. And I find that, so your your latest book, Hunger, is very much about your uh, 
the word journey sounds so cliche, but I guess your your journey with your weight, so or your your body size. So what what is that like putting something so vulnerable and and present into the into the narrative? Um, it's challenging. It was certainly a very vulnerable thing to write this book. Uh, but you know the reality is that when you have a fat body in the world, people decide your story well before they hear it. They don't care. They're gonna you know, project whatever bullshit narrative they want onto your body. And so writing the book was my way of transcribing my own story onto my own body. And um, so it was a really difficult book to write, but it was also a really freeing book to write to sort of take control of the public narrative around my body um, for however much that is possible. And how do you feel now after it's out? Like you, you say it feels freeing and that narrative has changed. Well, I have to wait till it comes out and see how yeah. people respond to it. You know, I'm, I'm nervous about reviews and uh, are people going to like it? I'm particularly scared of how the fat acceptance and body positivity communities are going to respond to it. So we'll wait and see. Yeah, I find the body positivity movement myself very, like it polices a certain truth about it does. what it is like. And it's also, mm. quite frankly, I, I call women generally, not entirely, but it's a lot of women who are Lane Bryant fat, which yeah. in the U.S. is a store um, where women can buy up to size 28. And not all of us can shop at Lane Bryant. There are some of us who are fatter than that. And so it, make, it becomes much harder. Like there's literally few places where you can even do something as basic as buying clothing. And so it's hard to be positive when you can't dress yourself. Um, you know, and so it's hard to be positive when you cannot walk down the street without being yelled at. Um, when people take shit out of your grocery cart and give you food advice everywhere. I've had people give me nutritional advice in the signing line at my readings. So... Um, yeah, uh, it's very frustrating to be positive and it's very hard to, to intellectually know, of course I deserve respect and dignity. And of course I'm an attractive person. I, I, I do believe that, but the world tells me otherwise. And it's hard to maintain the confidence and the, that sense of self when the world is always telling me otherwise. Nobody's that strong. Look for myself, when you talk about the, the weight loss surgery within hunger, so you, that's one of the, the starting points of your book. You go to one of those seminars and it, it sounded very similar to, to the one I went to. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up doing it. And from there, even getting the surgery to this day is now a conversation where I feel like I'm still judged for any decision I've tried mm-hmm. to make. So I didn't lose weight by having self-control mm-hmm. I lost weight because I was lazy and had half my stomach cut away yeah it's yeah. damned if you do damned if you don't and you know I think the surgery is a great option and there are certainly days when I wake up and I just think you know what fuck it I'm just gonna get the surgery but at least in the U.S. it has a five percent success rate mm-hmm. and so to cut myself open and rearrange my anatomy it, it, I'm just it terrifies me mm-hmm. and I think that for me, given the reasons why I gained weight, until I deal with that and until I get my sort of emotional house in order, weight loss surgery isn't going to fix the problem. I know how to lose weight, um, but I don't know how to stay. I don't know how to maintain that weight loss. And so that's what I'm working on before I even begin to think about actually getting the surgery. But, you know, it's really hypocritical that we break people down 
about fatness and say, do something. And then people do something like the surgery, which is a huge commitment of resources, of time, of changing your eating habits, of knowing you're going to be nutrient deprived and having to comp, you know, supplement that. And then say you were lazy. Really? There's nothing yeah. lazy about weight loss surgery. And Ugh, it's a disgrace that people think it is and act like it is. Like, it just doesn't matter what you do. I guess some people are going to be like the next form of discrimination or oppression. Please correct me on this. It's not next. It's, Currently, it's ongoing. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. I think fat is one of the last prejudices that people are entirely comfortable expressing without ever apologizing. Like, and people don't give a fuck. Like fat people say something and they, and you know, skinny people are just assholes um, say lose weight or mm. you're going to die soon. So what? Like what? It's my life. If I die soon, what, why do you fucking care? I don't even know you. Um, people take it real personally, even though it has nothing to do with them because they're afraid. And I think they're afraid because they know how they treat fat people and they don't ever want to be sort of on the end of that. Yeah. I, I, after like losing weight myself, it was, you know, it, it kind of makes me angry sometimes because people are so much nicer to me that I never realized that mm-hmm. there was this whole other world where mm-hmm. people are like decent to each other yeah. and they'll open doors for you and mm-hmm. shop assistants acknowledge you when you walk into a shop and people don't, you know, like I, like I can eat in public. I could never do that without being yeah. judged before. I rarely eat in public. Yeah. It's especially alone because it's such a pain in the ass. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole, every time I lose weight, I'm always like, oh, this is what it's like. Your work resonates so much with my experience as an Aboriginal woman Mm -hmm. in Australia. It's been so lovely talking to you. Thank you for taking time out of your day. Oh, you're more than welcome. I'm glad to be here. We'll be back next week with another episode of Pretty for an Aboriginal. Uh, but until then, tell all your friends about us uh, and your friends' friends and your friends' friends' friends and all those, you know, Absolutely you everyone that you know. <laughs> <laughs> and make sure you listen to us on iTunes or any good podcast app. And leave us a review. We read them, all of them. That's right. Uh-huh. Or you can find us on Twitter if you're nice. Uh, until then, <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Pretty for an Aboriginal is hosted and developed by Nikia Louie and Miranda Tapsell, produced and edited by Nicola Harvey and Cinnamon Nippard from AudioCraft. A big thanks to our supporter, Road Microphones, and BuzzFeed's director of audio, Eleanor Keegan, and the entire BuzzFeed podcast team. This is a BuzzFeed Australia production. <laughs>